Hey folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. In this episode, we're following up on our discussions of Korean natural farming and jadam to discuss what it means to put these into practice and to address the issues around localizing these practices. So if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I'd recommend checking it out. Or you could just listen to our chat today and see if you'd like to dive in a little deeper to the subject after listening to this conversation. In this episode, we chat with Nigel Palmer, author of the Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments and the Director and Curriculum Developer of Sustainable Regenerative Gardening at the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition. We talk extensively about what it means to provide a scientific framework to these traditional practices and how we can work with our local conditions and resources to take care of our ecology. So take a listen and let us know what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. Nigel, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into these alternative farming methods? Uh, sure. Uh, let's see, my background. Uh, I was an aerospace engineer for 37 years, and I was essentially troubleshooting uh, complex system level problems uh, on airplanes. And that requires reviewing great data sets, huge data sets with sometimes very little of real information and going through the statistics of trying to figure out how to fix things. So um, I'm a very data-driven person uh, based on that experience. I've had a garden my whole life since I was 20 years old and my family had gardens when I was a kid. My wife and I, Joan, we've been gardeners throughout our entire adult life. And gardening was just plain old fun. It's a place to get your fingers in the soil and really relate to nature, especially if you're in a cubicle for most of the day, sitting in a garden with your feet in the ground and your soil and your fingernails is a, is a great thing. Well, I think it was uh, somewhere maybe in our mid 40s or early 40s, we began to realize that the food we were growing in the garden was pretty good. And, and things started to change in the 80s, 90s, and food became a little bit more complex. Um, genetically modified foods were around, and the uses of pesticides and herbicides uh, um, were becoming more prevalent. And the food in the grocery store just didn't seem to be what we had hoped it would be. So we really started growing our own food. We tried to grow large quantities of the food that we really enjoy. For instance, garlic was the first one, and we grew enough garlic for a year, and then it was potatoes and fruit, and, and on it goes. So we try and grow large amounts of specific foods. Well, it didn't take long to realize that uh, our uh, uh, organic approach, if you will, of not adding uh, fertilizers and pesticides and things like that or purchased from the store didn't really help the soil and things, were, things got worse. Some things weren't able to grow anymore or, or became deficient and disease prone. And so I started to look around for ways to change this scenario. And I thought to myself, well, what did people do back in the day? And, and what do people do today in large-scale farming operations where they've been growing food on the same land for maybe in some cases thousands of years and still are able to grow high-quality food? Um, so I started doing things like putting weeds in a bucket of rainwater and letting it rot. And, uh, oh, it smelled terrible, but the plants didn't seem to mind. And it felt like it was the right thing to do. But it seemed that there's got to be a better way. And so I started looking all over the place for ideas uh, uh, um, and ways to facilitate 
the ideas of the past using the knowledge of the present. And the first book I came across was Natural Farming, Agricultural Materials by Cho Yu Young. Um, and it was a recipe book. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And, and so I grabbed hold of that and I found the recipes uh, a little bit difficult to follow as far as amounts and, and some of the information there. But I found that they not only did they work, but they felt right. There was an intuition of it all that really felt right. And so um, off I marched doing that. And then I found the Jadam book, which is essentially the same idea as taking things just to a different level with a different mindset. And so I started using those uh, ideas as well. And then at some point, my engineering background got in the way and I thought to myself, geez, I wonder what's really in these things and why are they working? And so I started to do analysis of some of the products, the fermented plant juices, vinegar extractions, uh, leaf mold biology, fermentations, and things like that, and sending them to a lab, finding, trying to find a lab that would actually do the analysis in a consistent manner and provide the dates, data that I was looking for. And I was really astonished to find what a broad spectrum of minerals were in a lot of these fermented plant juices and vinegar extractions. And then, and then starting to see, well, some of these things have a lot of, let's say, calcium or a lot of phosphorus. And, and then recognizing, wow, we can use this to our advantage. And then somewhere in there, uh, I think very early on, the refractometer came into my life and recognizing that you could actually measure the quality of fruits and vegetables and, and plants using a refractometer. And so all of a sudden, I was amassing these tools of how to not only make stuff, but to measure stuff and then get the data to support the discussions. And so that really has led me to where I am today in using these products that you can make at home for very little money, in most cases free, to grow quality vegetables and fruits at home and eliminate not only the pesticides and herbicides and some of the agrochemicals that people buy in a store, but also feel empowered and, and know what the food that I'm eating has in it, or perhaps more probably what it doesn't have in it. So that's kind of my background in, in, in getting to where I am. Yeah, that's great. That feels a lot like how I felt getting into Korean natural farming, where I, I was seeing you know, on YouTube or wherever folks talking about this practice and saying how great it is. And I kept wanting to find somebody that was like, okay, people are doing it and we've shown in a lab that this is what actually happens and we can explain why it works. And your book does a lot of that, which was really great. So I wanted to ask, at what point did you realize this needed to be a book that was written for folks to say, sure, there's these, um, these texts that exist that people can refer to that are steeped in knowledge collected over generations, but let's look at the science behind it and let's let's prove that it actually works as opposed to being this kind of i guess mystical understanding of how this works yeah well um i met john kempf i don't know how many years ago 10 or more years ago now i don't even remember probably more than that anyway john spoke of a science in agriculture that was difficult to find in a lot of textbooks since meeting john I have found some of those textbooks. Marshner, for instance, is a great resource. And uh, some Brady Wheels, a good textbook. Another one is Mineral Nutrition and Plant Disease. That's got Dantoff, Elmer, and Huber as uh, collaborators and 
consolidating information. And these are really hardcore textbooks kind of thing that go right down into the skinny of things. But John was able to talk about these things in terms that I could relate to. And by doing that, the work that I was doing at my, on my own in the garden was facilitated by these ideas about soil and land symbiotic relationships and minerals and biology and all of these ideas. And everything just felt really intuitive and right. And once I started to understand all these things, and then I started measuring these things and learning more about the Korean natural farming things and some of these other things that indigenous people have been doing over the years, I suddenly realized that I had a formula. I had a toolbox that I was putting together. I was able to put together a, a model, which I really encourage people to understand. And that's one of the things that I try and teach in many of the programs is you need a context. You, don't, you need a model for understanding and, and how to take all of these pieces of information and put it together. And then there was some point where I realized that, you know, after 15 or 20 years of putting all this stuff together, it was really hard. It was very, very difficult to pull all of these resources and put them into a comprehensive package in my own mind that I could use going forward. And, 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 and all of a sudden, I recognized that I had a formula. I had a toolbox, I like to call it, of information that A, talked about the models necessary to comprehend what we're talking about. B, some of the measurement tools needed to actually do some analysis on things. C, the analysis of the individual amendments, and so that people could now use really, really simple tools. We're talking, I call it kitchen chemistry. You're talking about ball jars and sieves and a refractometer and a pencil and paper of taking notes in a garden notebook. And all of a sudden, you could be empowered to be the experimental gardener that I had become. And so I realized that this information needed to be put in one place so that anybody in the world could grab hold of it and jump off the same place that I was presently. And so that's why I put this book together. And, and it's set up so that there's, there's a lot of framework in, in that a, a, a model is presented that talks about the symbiotic relationship between the soil and the plant, that talks about why the xylem and and, and flow and flows are important and how you can utilize these things in the garden and how you can measure the quality of things and how you can measure the efficacy of the amendments you make and what's actually in these amendments. So all of these things are, are brought together in one place. So anybody can take up this one simple book and start being their own experimental gardener and evaluate and answer their questions themselves. And I hope that's something that you've found to be the case. Yeah. That book, like I said before we'd started recording, it was kind of the book that tied together a lot of my own concerns and trying to figure out a lot of this stuff. One of the challenges of Korean natural farming, in my opinion, is the utilization of a lot of inputs like brown sugar that they make sense. And I understand why we they were used traditionally, but here in New England, that it doesn't make as much sense. So it's really interesting to see how you played between Jadam and Korean natural farming to kind of create this, like you said, essentially a, a series of recipes that can be integrated together, mm. which I guess brings me to my question of there's a lot of overlap in terms of Jadam and uh, Korean natural farming in terms of what the different methodologies do. So what's the driving force between saying, 
I'm using the leaf mold versus mm. a Korean natural farming, like a IMO2 or an IMO1 or whatever you decide to use. Uh, what, what kind of drives that process and what you thought was, I don't want to say more important, but maybe more appropriate? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's think, how should I phrase this? Well, so Korean natural farming talks specifically about things like the IMO, which is a shelf stable product. You make IMO4 and you've got it on the, in a pile on the ground and it'll last for some period of time. IMO2, I like to have IMO2 in my refrigerator. I have IMO2 from all over the place so I can pick different biologies based on season and use them accordingly. And then you've got the fermented plant juices, nice shelf stable product that you can have on your shelf. So you make it and you got it. Vinegar extraction, same kind of thing. You make it and you've got it on your shelf. The Jadam book talks a little bit more about leaf mold biology, which is an absolutely wonderful recipe and product, but it only lasts for a day or two or something like that. And then the biology transpires. So you have to use it then. Um, leaf mold biology fermentation is a wonderful product. I mean, you're talking free. You're talking a handful of leaf mold, a bucket of rainwater and some weeds, right? But you've got to put it there and it really wants to ferment for six months or nine months or longer before it becomes really the mineral content that you're looking for. And, and I actually have done that. And I have data analysis of both leaf mold biology and fermented plant juice of the same plants. And you can see that there's a significant difference in the mineral content, the mineral concentrations of these things. So the easy answer at a 35,000 foot level as to what you use is mostly what you have, but also what time of year is it? I'm not going to be making fermented plant juice in March around here in New England because it's too cold to find those plants, but I may have it on my shelf. And I'm not going to be making leaf mold biology in March around here either, but I might have a pile of IMO4, right? So a lot has to do with what you have and what time of year it is. So I make the KNF products, fermented plant juice, the vinegar extractions, and the IMO4 primarily because A, they're highly concentrated, and B, they're shelf stable and I can use them anytime. I use the uh, leaf mold biology and the leaf mold fermentation more as a longer term or a shorter term product, depending on what's available and what time of year it is. The other thing worth noting is now that I've done analysis on some of these products, specifically the shelf stable products, I'm recognizing that they have very high concentrations of certain things and not other things. So for instance, if I'm in, so right now it's September, uh, my tomatoes are flush, they're beautiful, I'm loving them, and they're fruiting. Well, we know that fruiting wants calcium, for instance. So I might take a fermented plant juice of, say, stinging nettle, which has a very broad spectrum mineral concentration in it, and then I might add to that some vinegar extraction of oyster shells or eggshells which have a very high calcium concentration in them. And you can look at the appendix of my book, and you can also look at the data on my website, and you can see that this is the case. It's, we're not guessing here. The data says this. So if I'm now able to address points of influence of the plant's life by using some of these products and recognizing what's actually in them. So if, uh, if I'm in a flowering phase, I might use a vinegar extracted cow bone uh, that has a very high phosphorus content in it to give that plant that phosphorus to actually turn on or, or facilitate that fruiting process. In fact, I've been very successful in getting plants to fruit by doing that. Then also, whether you're using a foliar or a drench, by understanding the xylem and the phloem pathways, we can determine when you want a drench versus when you want a foliar spray because 
the minerals are more or less transportable within those flow pathways. So by understanding the model, the plant model that I like to present, and understanding the data that's what's actually in them and the longevity and what's available, you're actually able to dial in what a plant wants and needs depending on its, its life cycle and its points of influence. So these are the kinds of ideas that I'm trying to get across to people so that they can become empowered and, and take control of their own farming gardening practices. The other thing worth mentioning is nature is very, very forgiving. When you provide things to nature, it will take advantage of it or not. And uh, that's not to say everything works all the time, but it is to say, A, you can measure it, and B, nature is very forgiving. So these products are almost homeopathy in proportions. We're talking parts per million, and you're diluting them by 500 to 1. So all of these ideas together give the, again, I'm going to call it the experimental gardener. It gives the person, anybody, the tools they need to become an experimental gardener and take these ideas to whatever level they want to. The beginner art gardener can just foliar spray stinging nettle on their plants, for instance. And once you become more sophisticated in it, you can actually use vinegar extractions that high, have high amounts of phosphorus in it to actually facilitate the fruiting portion of a plant's life cycle if you, if you get to that level. Yeah, that's what I love about it. The whole process is it's very experimental. And one of the things that I found in your book that I think in Korean natural farming is often talked about, but no one ever really, I guess, goes out and doesn't puts themselves out there is utilizing local resources. In the book, you talk a bit about like utilizing what's around and using Dr. Duke's phytochemical and ethnobotanical database to try to figure out what you can utilize. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do is look at non-traditional ingredients and try to figure out how we can actually use them, especially stuff that can either grow around here or stuff that maybe like I'll pick on like grapevines. The running theme, if you go on any Korean natural farming Facebook group is you can only use fermented plant juice from grapevines for grapevines, but I can never find anyone to explain why that's the case. I think that speaks a little bit to that mysticism that you're challenging a lot in this book where you're saying, well, why? Like, show me the evidence of that. In terms of this localness, I want to pick on like oriental herbal nutrient, Mm. which is, it's a very complicated process that's supposed to repel a lot of things. A lot of those ingredients are native to Southeastern Asia, and they're not very common here in North America. And again, if you go on any Facebook group that's about Korean natural farming, it's like, where do I get this ingredient? Where do I get that ingredient? I'm having a hard time sourcing a large amount of this. And that seems to be very antithetical to the process of creating these local regenerative food systems that you're importing all these ingredients. Granted, they're better than you know, importing chemicals or whatever, but it, it still speaks to like a, a fundamental shift from what we're trying to do. So like I'll pick on hyacinth, which I found is one of the only plants that's native to this region that has cinema, I'm never going to pronounce this right, cinema, uh, yeah, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> uh, but one of the main ingredients in cinnamon. My question is going to like Dr. Duke's phytochemical database sufficient in saying, let's try to figure out how to replace these ingredients with local native things that don't have the challenges of importing ingredients from very specific parts of the world. Geez, that's a, that's a wide open subject and it's a really important one. Let me choose, try and chew that into a little pieces. The first thing is that, again, once I published this book and started talking to, I've talked to people all over the world 
And there was one person I spoke to in Pakistan, and we were talking about making fermented plant juices. And the person at the other end said, well, you know, we don't have the things you're talking about here. And I suddenly realized, no kidding. Well, you got to have something. And the answer is, sure, we've got plants, but maybe they don't know what the Latin names for everything is. And maybe they can't use Duke's database. By the way, James Duke's database is top shelf. You can go into that database and you can identify the minerals, the average in the plants, and, and you hit, hit it on the head. That is an amazing resource to start this process. Go find out what you have in your backyard, look it up in James Duke's database, and that's going to give you a hint of what the minerals are. Make the fermented plant juice, do the analysis, and now you know. So there's your process. Okay, so let me rewind. So um, I was talking to people around the world and it became clear to me that some of the data that I've published in my book about these analysis is moot for these people because they don't have those plants. So I realized how important it was to try and make available a process that people can, anywhere in the world, can make fermented plant juice, do the analysis, and then publish it. And so I have a website now, thank you very much to the people around me that push me to make a website. But anyway, I have a website, uh, nigel-palmer.com. And on that, I have a data page. And I'm trying to collect data from all over the world now of different plants from all over the world. So anybody, somebody in Pakistan can go and I grab some of the plants, identify what the plant is, make fermented plant juice, send that to a lab for analysis and share it with me. And I'll publish it on my website. And these databases available for free. And the cost of doing the analysis, I'm working with Logan Labs, so there's a standard specific process, so the variation of analysis is taken out of the equation, and it costs 35 bucks per shot, and then if you don't want to share it with me, that's up to you, but if, if you do, then I'm going to publish it. And what I'm trying to do is create a database of plants from around the world, so people from other parts of the world have the ability to understand what's in the plants in their backyard. Okay, so that's one part of your question. And then, oh, oriental herbal nutrients. Yeah, making OHN is a, a, a long process, but essentially what you're doing is you're tincturing herbs. I mean, when you come right down to it, you're, you're, you're doing a little bit of fermenting, you're getting the, the hard stuff into a soft state with some alcohols, fermenting, and then essentially you're tincturing it. Well, any herbalist will tell you how valuable tincturing is, especially some of these big hitters, garlic, cinnamon, angelica root, uh, ginger. Um, I mean, you, these are really, really powerful herbs. And you talk to any herbalist and they're going to say, yeah, you know, this stuff is, you know, these have these characteristics and you can go into an herb book and you can read about some of their characteristics and what they do for people. So the next thing is, well, what are they going to do to plants? So I made some herbal nutrient and by the way, it tastes absolutely great. It, I mean, it is really, really flavorful. So what I did is I, you, this is going to come as a complete shock, but I decided to do an analysis on it and figure out what kind of minerals are in it. And lo and behold, it really didn't have a great mineral content, at least in the analysis of, that I did. I've only done one of those, but I was surprised to see that it, it didn't have the mineral content of something like a fermented plant juice of stinging nettle, for instance. But when you think about it, when you talk to an herbalist about it, you're going to find that it's not necessarily the mineral composition that's so powerful in these things, but some of the other constituents that are in it. Some of the other compounds that are in tinctures are the things that really facilitate health of people. And so why not the same thing in plants? So I've used herbal nutrient in, in the garden, um, and I'm getting ready to make some more. 
Uh, this is a great time of year because I can use my garlic and ginger and is grown locally. So I can get some of these herbs locally in order to make it. But I don't have a clear data set to discuss its efficacy. I didn't include it in my book as uh, one of the recipes for several reasons. One is because it was a really complex process, relatively speaking, and I wanted to make things in the book approachable and not so complex. And two is I really couldn't talk to the specific efficacy of it. And then finally, I think the other point you were talking about is what to use and local. Local's the big deal here. So many gardener farmers, they're some of the biggest polluters around depending on, I mean, go look at a hardware store and the wall of stuff that people are selling and people are buying because it's there. And one of the things that I'm trying to encourage is, is people to look at that stuff and say, look, I don't have to buy that stuff. You can make some of these things in the time it takes you to get in your car, drive to the store and bring that stuff back home. It's toxic. People who have wells, who have springs, who have animals, they're poisoning everything around them. And, and so these techniques are a way to do it in, in a very clean and, and eco-friendly way. So to use the things around you are very important. What plants do you have around you? What other resources do you have around you? Are you near a fish market? Are you near the ocean? Are you near a, a, a meat place, a, a butcher? And as I have conversations with people, uh, people talk about, well, what about feathers? And I think, well, yeah, well, let's ferment feathers. What's in them? Let's do the analysis. I've recently, I, I actually have to shave this every now and then. And so I'm thinking, well, what's in hair, right? Hair ought to be loaded with minerals. And of course, there's many, many other things around us that we could use that are local that may have great benefit in the garden. Again, this is a toolbox. Now you know how to use a recipe to put them into a form that you can use, whether it's vinegar extraction or a fermentation, and then you can do the analysis and find out what's in them. And then you can experiment with them and show that they do or do not work. So it's all of those things that are so important. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Yeah. One of the things that I personally do a lot of is utilize Japanese knotweed because it's such a strong invasive here. It's very similar in terms of profile to like dandelion. So it's just a really good broad spectrum plant to utilize for things like fermented plant juice. Mm. And folks will message me if I post about it and say, oh, well, we don't have Japanese knotweed around me. Well, good, first off. <laughs> and second off, there's so many options and trying to get out of that frame of mind of I need to use what somebody else used right. because they know what they're doing and I don't yet, I think is the part that I, I try to advocate so heavily about that I think gets lost and I think your book does a really good job of it. With that in mind, 
I want to transition a little bit. So you've taken a lot of different similar subject matters and kind of brought them into this one book. Now, I'm sure there's more things out there that we can utilize that we haven't thought about, not in terms of utilizing in a recipe that already exists, but possibly, you know, I know like Chris Trump, for example, is very big on LIMOs, which is the, I guess, liquid IMOs. Um, And people are trying to experiment to figure out new ways to process materials. So like one thing I do is I have a bunch of ponds and ducks and chickens and stuff, and I'll just scoop out the muck and use that as a fertilizer for my plants. Is there anything like that that you're researching as new ways to create amendments that might fill some gaps that you feel like aren't fully covered by the traditional methodologies that you've covered in the book? Well, let's touch on silts for a minute. Silts are an amazing resource. And I've done analysis on silts. I'll do a little bit more of a thorough analysis on a silt just because I want to test for heavy metals as well as the minerals that I'm interested in. It's real easy to put that those minerals on a garden space or a farm space, but it's really hard to remove them. And then you get into bioremediation, which is a whole other subject that we can talk about. But I think silts are a really great resource. Not only are they fine and clay-like and, and silt-like, so you've got really small particles, which are going to help with the exchange capacity of the soil, but they have a really wonderful spectrum. And if you've got ducks floating in the top, feeding the bottom, I can't imagine them having anything but more possibilities. So silts are a great idea. I think that everybody has in their backyard resources. And I I just don't think we take advantage of them. I don't think people have the mindset to think about what's back there. And again, that's why this is so important. It's up to you to look in your backyard, whether it's hair, whether it's human waste, whether it's feathers, whether it's uh, maple syrup residue, whether it's, okay, what are you doing? What's the processes on your farm? What are you making on your farm? Are, if you're making maple syrup, well, there's that stuff at the bottom at the end. What happens when you ferment that? Uh, you're processing birds. Well, what about all those feathers, right? You're, you're, you're splitting wood. Well, obviously, the remuel wood and the wood chips and things like that. So what, what's actually going on in your area? And how can you use these recipes to put them into a form where you can analyze and evaluate them. So I think that that is the big deal. I really enjoy speaking to people from other parts of the world because there you understand some of the diversity going on. Uh, Let me try and think of another example. Okay, so in the program, my, my, my workshop that I put forward, I get people from all over the world and I get people from all kinds of environments. Here in New England, we are rich. We have water, a lot of it these days. We have lots of trees and plants. We have huge amounts of resources. But when I speak with people like from the inner city, for instance, all of a sudden, well, where are they going to get a handful of leaf mold? Okay, so now you think about, well, is there a park around? Is there a big honking tree somewhere? Uh, maybe you need to make your own compost pile and, and, and go to the woods, go out to a, a, on a day trip and find some woods and grab that leaf mold and bring it back and, and inoculate a compost pile. Again, uh, in some parts of the world, it's very arid and very dry, and there aren't grasses and there aren't plants growing. Okay, what's available to you? you know, and, and are there bones available? Are you eating meat? And uh, what bones do you have available to make a, a, a vinegar extraction? So I think it's a really cool question. And I like to talk to people about this because a lot of people think, well, I've got nothing around me. There's nothing around me to use. And I say, oh, really? Well, so where do you live? 
Okay. You know, is there a park nearby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are there ponds? Is there a swamp? And so engaging in people and having conversations about what's actually in their backyard is extremely important and a lot of fun, actually, because I learn a ton about different parts of the world when I investigate with them what's available to them. Yeah. So I can speak to that a bit because I live on traditionally poor soils, very sandy, you know, we're only a couple miles from the beach, heavy white pines, the occasional jack pine, generally what we might traditionally consider a non-productive landscape, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to call it. I started realizing, well, I can go harvest oysters at the beach and then start utilizing those shells on my own farm. And, you know, we have a high water table, so creating ponds is fairly easy and getting ducks in. And then, like I was just saying, using that duck pond water to improve uh, the soil also because we do have those large particles of sand it helps create more of a loamy sand theoretically over a long period of time and um, really starting to rethink about that process of okay how can i utilize pine what what good is it even if i don't want to you know it doesn't produce any nuts or anything like that how can i utilize it in a way that's functional whether through hugel mounds or kindling or whatever it might be and trying to find the appropriate use for the site that i have versus trying to make it the site that it isn't or you know it might be someday but not anytime soon and so when you talk about pine for instance uh the first thing that i think of when i think of pine is wow i've got a carbon source one of the things that struck me that i learned from uh from brian o'hara was one day he told me nigel you are going to realize you have a carbon problem not a nitrogen problem and it took me a while to figure out what he was saying but in fact you, we need carbon in our soil in huge quantities in, in order to feed the soil ecosystem. The soil ecosystem eats carbon. And so that pine all of a sudden becomes a source of carbon for you that you can use in a compost pile and feed the biology in your soil so that it can break down all of the other things that you want to throw in that compost pile. So yeah, th- that's a great example. And, and again, it's this whole mindset of becoming, empowering yourself, right? Now I have the tools where I don't have to go to the hardware store and ask somebody for something that probably may or may not work for my environment and has a high probability of being toxic. Instead of that, I can start using my own thinking with my own resources and and figure out how to move forward, exactly as you just explained. Yeah, and I think that's really important. You talked about this book as being kind of this platform for people to build from. Now, do you imagine or would you like in an ideal world want to see a hundred different books come out following this about like local conditions and utilizing what exists? So it sounds like you're starting to do that a little bit with this database where people are going to be able to incorporate things that are local to them. Do you think it makes sense or is necessary for people to start putting out books that are like, this is the guide to garden amendments of India or you know Southeastern India or or wherever, where it can start to address some of those very local conditions? Well, obviously, the sharing of information is extremely important for everything and anything. So I think those are great ideas. And I'd love to see uh, people take this as a platform, as you call it, and, and, and move forward with it to expound upon their specific areas and, and, and learning. I think that's a great idea, a wonderful thing to do. I, I think that most people just don't have the energy or the bandwidth to do that. Uh, writing a book is a, it takes it's a lot. lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One last question I think I wanted to ask, and uh, I, 
I actually didn't mention it to you before, but I've been kind of thinking about it as I reread the book before this interview. You had talked a lot about plant magnetism, and that's not something I've read about outside of your book. It's a really interesting concept. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Very few gardening books or farming books or plant books talk about energy flow. And energy flow is paramount importance in any living system. Us, for instance, plants, it doesn't matter what it is. Energy is the driver for everything. And until we have conversations about energy, then I think we're kind of missing a lot of the story. And how do we facilitate energy flow? How do we facilitate the efficiency of photosynthesis in a plant? How do we affect water? How do we change characteristics of water such that it can be better utilized by plants and, and things like this? We live in an electromagnetic spectrum of a bath of electromagnetic radiation of all different frequencies. Most of us are familiar with the visible spectrum. Uh, that's how we get around. But the spectrum goes that way and that way in either direction of the visible spectrum and contains all sorts of energy. Infrared energy is specifically important for plants and insects. A lot of the behavioral patterns of insects is based on this infrared radiation. Plants actually give off radiation of various frequencies. And unhealthy plants, for instance, give off frequencies in the infrared spectrum that basically alert insects that I'm an unhealthy plant, please come and eat me now. And when an insect is eating your plant, that's what it's supposed to do. That's what nature intends. And insects are supposed to eat unhealthy plants. When your plants become healthy, they no longer emit those signals and the insects no longer have the enzymes in their stomach to digest those plants. And so they no longer become a food source. So the whole idea of a healthy plant does not need pesticides or insecticides is extremely important. And most people don't get that. And infrared radiation is a, a signaling device for insects to eat plants. Relative to energy flow itself, not only is there an electromagnetic spectrum that plants respond to in the guise of photosynthesis, for instance, but there's also potential energy uh, between the soil. When we talk about ground, we mean ground. The ground is the ground potential of potential energy. As you move away from the ground higher and higher, the potential increases and plants take advantages. There's a flow of energy through plants into ground and down through the ground throughout the network in the soil. So how do we affect that? How do we understand that? How do we facilitate that as we grow plants and nurture plants? And this brings up ideas like paramagnetism, for instance. And also uh, biodynamic farming can fall into these kinds of discussions as well. And so I think that these are really important ideas and concepts to explore and, and have discussions about. I talk very specifically about mixing amendments. We're diluting these things 500 to 1, 1,000 to 1. And when we mix them, I like to spin them in a bucket with a magnetic field around them. Now, these uh, mineral amendments are charged. They're ionic. And so they're charged. And you can actually measure the change in conductivity in the water when you add these amendments to them. You, 
It's amazing to me to measure the conductivity of rainwater, which is very close to zero. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion. But anyway, when you add a tablespoon of fermented plant juice of stinging nettle, for instance, you can actually measure the change in the conductivity of the water. So now when I'm mixing that through a magnetic field, I'm moving charged particles through a magnetic field. Well, if you know anything about an, a motor, an electric motor, you're generating electromotive force when you do that. That force, that energy is being absorbed by the water. There are some papers, one of which I cited in my book, that suggests that this changes the viscosity of the water. And also, well, so I use it in this particular case as a surfactant. I want my foliar spray to last as long as possible on the leaves. By having the water spread out on the leaf, I'm giving it an opportunity to last longer. Now, I'm, I'm going to suggest there's a whole bunch more going on there. But very simply speaking, you can cause the water to spread out on the leaf and last longer by spinning it in a magnetic field. So there's huge amounts of information to be gleaned by this. And I like to just throw that out as another point of interest for the experimental gardener to consider as they go forward. And now there is a topic that I'd like to see a book about. Yeah. Is somebody write a book that's talking about what are the effects of uh, not only the magnetic field of Earth, the potential energy from Earth, and the energy flows into Earth on plant health. Yeah, wow. You know, and I'm sure this is something you've experienced too, where you feel like you've got a pretty good footing on like all the subject areas of like agriculture, gardening, and then someone's like, hey, have you ever heard of this? And you're like, no, I've never heard of this. And how does that happen that I've made it this far and I've never heard of this thing before? That was for me what happened when you talked about it in the book. And I was just like, oh, totally. It never occurred to me, but it makes a lot of sense. And I just like struggling to wrap my head around it. So I think the way you, you articulate it makes a lot of sense and reinforces kind of what I thought about that process. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully it was helpful for some folks to hear. So for folks that are interested in what you're doing, your book is The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments. I know you've got some social media stuff and you also do some classes. So I'd like to give you a moment to chat a little bit about that. Okay. Thank you very much for, for that opportunity. Yeah, I do have a website, nigel-palmer.com. I also have a YouTube channel that I'm starting to populate, and all the videos on the YouTube channel are for free. And I also offer a, a five-part program, a five-part class, five two-hour sessions once a week. And I go through conversations about this plant model and then talk about some of the basics of xylem flow and phloem flow, I talk about all of these amendments, uh, some of their usages, talk about composting, mulching, and cover cropping, and really expound on the material in the book. Uh, the book gives you uh, some really wonderful background, but this class offers an opportunity to not only go deeper into those conversations, but also offers question and answer time. Uh, the program not only, it's like a two hour class, and then there's an hour of questions and answers afterwards. So far, the people that have gone through that program have been extremely positive in their, in their commentary. I also teach at a school called the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition, which is a holistic program uh, talking about the science of nutrition, talking about kitchen medicine uh, and, and making clean health products uh, for not only the body and the home, for a pharmacy of information, learning about herbs and, and some of the practical health things that people have 
done for 200 years before they went to a pharmacy and, and bought pills. And then also uh, a cooking portion that teaches people how to make things like sauerkraut and bread and bone broth and, and many, many of the other health things that people uh, need. And then I teach the garden portion of that program. And what's really cool about that program is when did eating become so complicated? I mean, you know, years ago, you, you, you grew it, you ate it and, and you didn't have to worry about it. But, you know, all of the different fad diets and things like that. What, why is it so difficult to just eat real food anyway? So those are some resources. And, and the next program, uh, the next program gardening workshop that I'm teaching starts in the third week in October or the second week in October. So there, I encourage people to, to look us up online at nigel-palmer.com if you're interested. Do you expect to do any more in January or February or March? I think I probably will. The The feedback has been very, very positive, and I probably will do it again sometime in the wintertime to try and catch that early, early spring phase of, of things. The nice thing about doing it now is you can still actually start making some of these products and understand why you're making them. And again, some of them are shelf-stable, so you have them on your shelf ready to go in the springtime. Awesome. Well, Nigel, thank you so much. This has been really insightful. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you on your program. 